what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. False and true education, the difference is, one of the main differences, not the only one, is misunderstanding in the false education of the image of God. We will push people in the false educational system to excel in the external gifts, but we will neglect to teach them the most important thing of all, which is found in the Word of God, which is humility of soul, love for others above myself. You see, you can't teach that in a system that uses rivalry as the motivation, can you? The little messenger of the Lord said, she said, uh, what is, to what is the appeal of motive most often made to self-seeking? She says, such education is, in my own paraphrase of it, she says, such education is not worthy to be called education. Because that central motive, sort of like ink in the veins of a plant, goes through the whole thing and just contaminates it. Everything good, apparently, that we can do, once it's derived from that motive, is contaminated. It falls short of the glory of God. And that's what my life was before I was a Christian. And unfortunately, after I became a Christian, I fell back into that same confusion. You know, Everything you look at in the media, just about, <clears throat> mixes good and evil. It's not just about evil. Satan is too smart. And so it mixes good and evil. And if you look at the pagan authors, we'll talk, look at some quotes about those. They were gifted with great light, and there was men of great intellect. But they rejected the revelation of God in nature, and they had access to his word oftentimes, and they rejected that. And they chose instead their own wisdom, and as a result, the gifts that God gave, which are brilliant, they used for the glory of Satan. And Satan imparted to them special gifts in his charisma, and people are still in, enchanted by them when they read their writings. And it just seems, wow, that was deep. Yeah, Satan's very deep. In intellect. He beguiled our parents after all, you know. I mean, he, if you wanted to sit down and talk to him, he could amaze you, but don't do it. Uh, if you wanted to look at his art, it could outstrip any human art. He's a brilliant musician, brilliant artist, creatively. God did not take those gifts from him when he fell, but he threw away the gift of the righteousness when he fell. And so these external gifts he uses to bedazzle us, and he's using them to bedazzle the world today in the media and in the, in the movies. Um, so, you know, you'll notice that. Are you ready? Or, okay. All right, let's uh, bow our heads. Uh, I'm going to kneel. I think we need to kneel if possible. Oh, precious Father, uh, we thank you for your great love. And Lord, please help us to understand what it is you want us as a last day church, as Laodicea, what it is you want us to manifest. Because we know that you tell us that we are often blind and miserable and wretched and poor, thinking we are rich, but not manifesting the image as you want it manifested, not understanding the separation between darkness and light, becoming confused over what constitutes riches when it's only the gold of Jesus' faith and goodness and love. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, as we study this subject and send your spirit with us. Amen. Okay, Anthony's going to talk here in about 10 minutes. So I'm going to go fast as I can without getting, leading to confusion, hopefully. But two image makers, same idea, right? Only two images in the universe. Ephesians 2, if you get a chance, look at it. In Ephesians 2, we're going to bring it up here, hopefully, if I have time. Ephesians 2, Paul presents two 
pictures of humanity. Those that are under the sun manifesting his glory and those that are under the prince of the power of the air doing the will of Satan even though they don't know it. They are servants of his. The only way you cannot be a servant of Satan is to accepting Jesus Christ. Now, I agree there's people in parts of the world that don't even know the name of Jesus that are yielding to his influence upon the soul. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, only this sector in the West who knows about Christianity manifests the image of God. I'm not saying that. There are natives in the jungle who, when they yield to an act of kindness, are yielding to the influence of the Holy Spirit, to what Jesus has preferred for the race, what he's made available to the race. They don't have a full understanding, but they are yielding to the influence of God. So I want you to understand that it's broader than just those who profess Christ. Two image makers in the universe. The artists and designers of the past. Let's talk about those. What did they do? As an artist or an athlete or a warrior, uh, anybody who had a high gift or a gift that we consider high, their job was to be propaganda agents for the empire. I mean, that was it. You didn't, you know, sell art on the street like people do now. Back then, if you had gifts, you were brought in under the empire, and your job, on pain of death, was to promote the empire. There wasn't a whole lot of freedom back then, you know. The artist's role was to what? Was to communicate the beliefs of the ruling empire. That's what artists did. And the rulers fast and quickly understood the need for ecumenical measures. You know, Egypt wanted to be a great empire, but there was a problem. There were other empires around. And so they figured out pretty quick that ecumenism was sometimes the best way to stay on top. What that means is you indoctrinate other peoples. You captivate them like Daniel brought to Babylon, and you treat them nicely, the heads of state from various places, and you send them back and you tried to be ecumenical because pretty soon empires realized that they weren't all powerful and they had to use subvertive means to stay on top as well as show of power, okay? So the artists were very active in the ecumenical measure because they were the advertisers. They had their billboards, you know, on the, uh, the Great Pyramids. That was a billboard and the Great Sphinx and the, the great images like Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. That was their billboards. I mean, nothing really has changed under the sun. We've just gotten a little bit more technological with it, but it's all the same, okay? The artists, actors, athletes, warriors, they were all in one group, and that was they were agents of the empire to portray what the empire wanted, which was that that particular race of people was superior to other races, and if you wanted to be superior, you needed to become part of them. That was usually what they said, right? Artist skills were looked on as deified, the image of God. After all, if you have creative ability or intellectual ability or athletic ability, isn't that the image of God? Well, in a certain qualified sense, the skills are from God's image, from what he's made, but they're not by themselves the image of God. In fact, they can be used against the image of God. So I've been told over and over again, both in Christian institutions and in non-Christian institutions that what I'm doing is manifesting the image of God when I do my art. It depends on what my art says. It depends on what my art says. Just doing something skillful isn't the image of God. Art of skills, the art of ancient Greek theater. You know what the bottom line of Greek theater was? If you've ever been foolish enough like me to watch Star Trek, you could probably tell me. <laughs> 
I used to be addicted to, to media a lot, and I watched all the science fiction, you know, that was my thing. What, what is the basic lie that they spread? Yeah. 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 Man, it's a humanistic center, though. You notice? Yes, it, they show the great controversy. Satan's interested in portraying himself in the great controversy, but always as the good guy. And so man travels throughout the universe, and all these races that are all messed up, he fixes them. That's Star Trek's new theme, by the way. I mean, it's always been their theme, but they're really bringing it out now. Man has evolved finally to the point where, you know, do you know that the ancient Greeks had the same idea in their theater? Not much different to Hollywood today. Basically, man always triumphs through the tragedies. They're called Greek tragedies. There would be tragedy, death. You know, this guy murders his wife, and, and then he does something good, and then he does something bad. But in the end of it all, he overcomes it all, and mankind is immortal because, after all, even though I die, my son lives. And the, one of their poets said, men are gods, and gods are men, because in dying another lives. And they were trying to find their way to immortality. They lost it, but they're trying to convince themselves to the, the wiles of Satan that really we didn't lose it, we we're immortal. You know, and the immortality of the soul has always been there in one form or another. But the art of the ancient Greek theater was to tell you that your humanity is the image of God, that you are a God, and that ultimately man is great and shall overcome all obstacles. Bottom line of Greek theater. Uh, is it much different in Hollywood? Have you watched the movies? Hopefully you've learned that it's not the place to go to learn anything. But, you know, and I'm, I'm for media. I use media. I believe in using the camera. Get, don't get me wrong. But the devil knows how to use it very well. And he instills in those stories the lie of Nebuchadnezzar's image. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was shown an image. It was an image of a human. And God said... Anything founded upon the fallen ideas of man is not going to stand. I'm going to crush that image. Come in under my son. Follow me as the great God, not this image that all the empires agreed upon was the image, which was a false image. Nebuchadnezzar used an image, and God knew what it meant. And so when he used the golden image, you know, God no, it's not going to be that way. Nebuchadnezzar was making a statement. He was saying, man's ways are going to prevail for eternity. And of course, I'm the realization of the greatest of men. And God said, uh-uh. But he wasn't the only one. You know, we have uh, the Egyptians doing the same thing. They made what they call Colossus, these great images and statues to show the greatness of man. Crops up later in David's, uh, in Michelangelo's David. It's a Colossus. He's uncircumcised. He's got a Greek hairstyle, and he's nude. Oh, but we're hybridizing the Christian ideas with the Greek ones now, you see. Rome loved the Greeks. They liked some of the things about Christianity, but they really liked the Greeks. And so they married the two together, and you have David, who's really supposed to be the, the image of a youth who has no strength against this great giant, doesn't have the skill to outdo this giant, but he believes in the God who can. And instead, Michelangelo shows you this great David who's a colossus, and he's got this, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger almost build. He's perfect. And it's the Greek ideal of the image of God that you see in the Michelangelo's David. Now, later on, there seems to be a change in Michelangelo. He had a, a woman friend who was involved in the Reformation spirit, and I think it might have gotten to him because later on, 
he, he shows Christ, and he's not a Colossus, and he shows Peter with his arms around Christ. And there's a different picture there. And they think that it was the face of Michelangelo that was the model for Peter, that he used his own face, his arms around Christ. So interesting. We don't know for sure, but you do see a change in his work. Um, out of all this came the classical belief that art, that man's creative genius is his closest trait to God. Do you know any Christian authors that make this claim? That man's creative genius is his closest trait to God. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, where did they get it from? Fallen Protestantism imbibed it from Romanism. Romanism imbibed it from the Greeks. The Greeks imbibed it from the Babylonians. The Babylonians got it from the Egyptians. The Egyptians got it from the Antediluvians. The Antediluvians got it from Cain, and Cain got it from the serpent. Yeah. It's not. Our creative ability is no higher than our other mental abilities. It's a gift from God, but it, it doesn't make me like God. Satan is very creative. In fact, if you were to go head to head with Satan, I should say that he would outdo you in creativity. Would you agree? I think so. Does he have the image of God in him? Absolutely not. He's darkness, not light. Okay. So I've been taught this. I've been taught this in Christian schools that my gift of art was the image of God. My gift to compete against others in athletics and win was the image of God. Uh-uh. Out of all this came the classical belief that art, creative genius, is the closest trait or likeness of man to his God. And they deformed, as Paul says in Romans 1, the image of God. Here I'll end with this statement. In studying secular art and secular art schools, I began to notice this core element of their religion. It is that human imagination is deified and thought to be man's highest attribute. It is reminiscent of Nero's last words. Nero wanted to be a great athlete and a great artist, an actor. He acted in the theater. It was terrible, they said. And people would feign death so that they'd be carried out. Because once he started acting, he'd go on for hours and hours and hours, probably like me preaching sometimes. And, and, but he was a total failure as a politician. He destroyed Rome. He was cruel against the Christians. And finally, he committed suicide when they were chasing him to get him. Finally, when he was deposed, he lost his power. And he killed himself and said, what an artist. I die. Now, what does that mean? He thought, he thought he was great in the way he died. It was a travesty. He was so cruel that he kicked. He came home late from the theater one night. I got this from PBS. Sometimes I do watch PBS to get some of their documentaries, get some of that historical information. But he, uh, he kicked his wife in the stomach. She was pregnant, and both her and the child died. But he was manifesting the image of God because he was such an artist, an athlete. He had all the races fixed so he'd win them, you know, and nobody wanted to beat him. Of course, he didn't, he didn't beat the emperor in the chariot race. You're going to you lose your head, you know. So anyway, he was, he was a lover of the Greeks. Okay. Now, I'm not against Greek people because Paul tells us that both Jews and Greeks in Christ are fulfilled and they're the image of God in Christ. I'm not against the Greeks, but I'm just against the human fallen idea about the image of God, okay? There are many Greeks who accepted Jesus when even many of the Jews didn't. The Roman church fathers, leaving the cutting truths of the word of God, became more and more enamored uh, with the beliefs of the Greeks and adopted them into hybridized Christianity. Thomas Aquinas is one of the theologians that was really enamored with Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and 
brought their ideals of the image of God into, quote, Christian education. They came to exalt this ideal that the gift of art and craft was in itself evidence of man's divine human bearing. Thus, the preaching of the biblical faith, morality, and humility waned, and the building of monstrous cathedrals increased at the cost of the common labor. Now, I'm not against the beauty of architecture, but I want you to see how it was used in the church that fell. They were losing the image of God in their hearts, and they covered it up with the externals. Let's build bigger buildings. Let's have more rituals. Let's, uh, they love competition. Let's build big arenas. Let's have a drama. They use drama even in the Reformation to counteract the Reformation. You know, that's the Catholic Church. So anyway, I'll end there. I have a lot more, but Anthony's going to come and share a little bit of his experience coming from the world and being immersed in it and how God basically set him free and showed him the image of God. All right, before we begin, I'd like to bow in a word of prayer, ask the Lord to bless us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for bringing us all together this Sabbath day. I ask, Lord, that you will bless this testimony, that you open up our hearts and our ears, that you will empower me, Lord, to share all the wondrous things that you've done in my life. You promised, Lord, to, to give us power to become your witnesses. You've also promised that where two or more are gathered together in your name, that you are there in a the mess. Please be with us now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm originally from uh, Los Angeles, California. That's where I grew up. I, um, I've been in the advertising industry since 1994. I primarily worked in direct mail marketing, uh, business and consumerless database management. I've created and managed national ad campaigns for uh, the following companies, Experian, Staples, Chase Bank, ING Direct, and a host of other information and financial services companies. <clears throat> Excuse me. Over the last 10 years, I've mailed close to 25 million direct mail advertisements. I'm not an expert in advertising, but I do have enough experience to know how advertisers think and how they operate. In direct mail, any person that has an address is a, is, a, is a prospect or a potential customer. In the media, TV, cable, internet, and radio, any person that has eyes to see and ears to hear is a potential prospect or future customer. The total spending by 100 leading TV advertisers in 1993 was over $15 billion. So by now, that amount must have doubled or, or even tripled. The problem with advertising today is not so much advertising itself, because without advertising, we wouldn't know, um, most businesses wouldn't survive, and we, wouldn't, we would have a limited variety of uh, goods and services to choose from. The problem with advertising today is one of the main issues is that Satan has incorporated into so much of the advertising that we see, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that's one of the reasons why we see so much pornography all over society and print media on the internet and even cable TV. I'd like to read to you an excerpt from Enemy at the Gate. 
As a master of the mind sciences, Satan understands and uses the avenues of the senses to communicate his messages to the brain. Without question, the most effective way for him to lead into transgression of God's law is through the appeal of the sensory powers. By means of corrupt channels of communication which dominate our present evil world, Satan accesses the powerful visual and auditory paths to reach and captivate the mind, the control center of all decision and action. Understanding the vulnerability of that mind, he has exploited the natural laws that God has set up for protection of our mental and physical powers. One of those laws decrees that by beholding we become changed. By choosing to look at scenes of purity and righteousness, human beings can cooperate with the Holy Spirit in restoring the image of God to fallen man. That's page 11. The Bible says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2.2. So in essence, he has power and influence over what we see and what we hear. According to the word of God, what we allow ourselves to listen to and hear shapes our minds, shapes and molds our characters. Paul was inspired to write in Galatians 6, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to the flesh, shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the spirit, shall of the flesh reap everlasting life. Many today are being conditioned to accept the ungodly. And many souls are being deceived because of a wrong, because of a misunderstanding of this principle. Today I'd like to share with you some of the devices Satan uses to ensnare people in his traps. Like most advertisers, Satan uses image branding via saturation. Through constant bombardment of the same messages or images until it breeds familiarity in the mind. Kind of like music. Most of us are aware of the fact that we can hear a tune or we can hear the melody of a song. It might not have been a song that we've heard in over 10 or 15 years, but instantly the words will replay in our mind. We can recall that sound, that song or those lyrics just like we heard the, the, the music yesterday. And that's how our mind works with images. We may not know that these images are being stored into our brain through subliminal TV um, advertisements or through direct mail or through radio, or I mean through the visual senses of our, of our, that God has given us, but they're there in the background. And we, when we view other images, they can bring back triggers and bring back you know, memories of what we've seen. Satan knows that saturation and repetition works well. The more we see it and the more we hear it, the more that we remember it and accept it. He's not, wor he's not worried if we don't respond to the images or to, the, to the, the lyrics and the music immediately because the seeds have been sown. A 30-second Super Bowl promo costs between 2 and $3 million, and there are corporations that line up for this spot each year because they know how effective just 30 seconds of imagery is on the mind. They know that they're, what they're trying to convey to you or what they're trying to promote, all they need is 30 seconds because that's how 
short period of time that it, it needs they need to for that to have an effect. The goal is to get our attention just for a few seconds. Remember David. David saw Bathsheba bathing across on a balcony or building, and he looked. And the problem wasn't that he looked, but the problem was that he continued to look, and he didn't turn away. And most of us are familiar with the story. He, that looking led to longing. The longing led to lusting, and he ended up committing adultery and, and then murder. And David, after he sought the Lord and repented, he had this testimony that he would not set any unclean thing or evil thing before his eyes. Advertisers, they don't always show us the complete picture of the truth. Oftentimes, there's truth mixed with error. I mean, think about it. We see so many ads of uh, people having a good time at a party. They might be drinking alcohol, but they don't show us the individual that's addicted to that alcohol. And they don't show the, the families that are being torn apart and lives are being destroyed because of the individual that leaves the bar and kills an innocent couple on his way home. And I grew up with an alcoholic father, so I know exactly, you know, the, the, uh, the damage that is done through addiction. Um, he uses the most appealing and exciting imagery to draw our attention. Now, some of you here that, that have TV sets at home, you, you're familiar with when you turn on the TV set and you change the channel almost compulsively until you find something that you see that, that fits your fancy. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Let me see what that is. Okay, I'll watch it for, for a couple of seconds. Oh, well, it's kind of boring. Let me, let me change. Oh, wow, that's pretty exciting. So our minds are being drawn to, to what is exciting and what is appealing to the carnal nature. Um, advertising, especially on TV, is not realistic when we compare it to everyday life because they take something that's mundane, is like watching, washing dishes, and they make it look like it's exciting or exhilarating, but it's an everyday function that we partake of, and it's not. You know? Somebody comes in the room, and they're dancing, or they're, you know, they're, they're beep-bopping, and, and, but that's not reality. You know, watch it, washing dishes is pretty mundane. At least for me it is. <laughs> Have you ever asked yourself why is there so much sex and violence on TV? Anybody? Can anybody give me an answer? A, a quick one? Well, advertisers use sex and violence on TV as a pro, uh, in pro, and in promos and in previews as a hook to draw viewers into the program. Sex and violence is an effective promotional tool to sell everything from bubble gum to cars. And we see, we see promos on TV where they'll use uh, someone like Paris Hilton to sell burgers. We were all familiar with, familiar with that commercial when it came out. And she basically had you know, very skimpy clothing on. I think the ad was the promo was for Carl's Jr. Previews only have a short amount of time to show something interesting enough to attract a viewer. So that's why we see so much sex and violence on TV. Most promos contain several scenes, thus complicating efforts to explain the plot in 10 or 20 seconds. With so little time to grab our attention, the, in the easiest thing to feature are those things that require a little explanation. 
sex and violence. What impact is this having on our children? Here are some statistics I'd like to share with you. I'd like to take a few minutes to share with you on what impact this is having on the children of, of society in today's age. Average time the, a kid spends watching TV every day is four hours. 44% of kids say that they watch something different when their parents are not at home. 25% of that group say that they watch MTV. 66% of children ages 10 to 16 surveyed say that their peers are influenced by TV shows. 62% say that sex on TV in movies influences kids to have sex at an age when they're too young. According to the Nielsen group the t from which this survey was taken, the top 25 TV shows, the top TV shows for 12 to 17-year-old girls are American Idol, The O.C., Will and & Grace, and One Tree Hill. ABC's Desperate Housewives is the most popular broadcast network television show with kids ages 9 to 12, according to the Nielsen stats. This was reported in January of 05. So I can imagine that it's even much worse now. Kids watching between ages 9 and 12, Desperate Housewives. I mean, that's, you know, that's unbelievable. But it shows, and it, it shows why society has evolved to where it's at now, why things are getting so bad, and why things are getting so wicked in society. is because of the things that we are allowing to come into our minds through the visual senses and through hearing. Children spend more time watching television than any other activity except sleep. Television reaches our children at a younger age for more time than any other socializing institution except the family. Television alone is responsible for 10% of youth violence. According to the American Psychiatric Association, for the last two decades, the one predominant finding in research on the mass media is that television and exposure to media portrayals of violence increases aggressive behavior in children. The cumulative, cumulative impact of violence-laden imagery can lead to a, a mean world perspective in which viewers have an unrealistically dark view of life. Now, some of us, or maybe most of us, remember the Columbine shootings. How many remember the Columbine shootings? Let me see a show of hands. Now, we all, we all are all familiar with what they were doing before the shootings, the things that they were involved in, the, the video games, the music, um, that all of those things that they were beholding were pretty much satanic, and they were anti-God. And even one of the shooters, they, one of the shooters targeted Christians at the school. And it, it just goes to show that the things that we do listen to, the things that we allow ourselves to behold, that it, it has an effect on, on our minds and on our spirits. The average child will watch 8,000 murders on TV before finishing elementary school. By age 18, the average American has seen 200,000 acts of violence on TV, including 40,000 murders. 
if by beholding we become changed, could this be why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, speaking of one of the signs that would precede his return, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many would wax cold. Jesus, looking down through time, must have seen the effects of the media, especially on the young minds of our children. All these statistics I can relate to. I have a personal testimony I'd like to take a few minutes to share with you about my stepson, Joshua. He just made 15 in March of this year. And he was in a fight at school where he later learned that the individuals that he was in a fight with, they posted the video on the Internet. And he was so embarrassed and shocked by, by that event that he didn't know how to handle it. And he ended up taking his life. And this happened in um, May of this year. After the funeral, I got a chance to see the stuff that Joshua was listening to on his iPod. And it was, it was pretty much the same stuff that I grew up listening to. You know, Tupac, Biggie Smalls, all the rappers that glorified death and, and you know, destruction. I talked to some of his family members afterwards, and they said that the, his favorite TV show was The First 48. Is anybody here familiar with that show, The First 48? And the reason that I, I was for sure that this, these things had an influence on him is because at 15 year, years old, you don't know how to go into the bathroom and take a pillow and shoot yourself so that your, your family members don't hear it. You know, that's something that he saw on TV. The average 15-year-old doesn't make those types of plans when he's thinking about committing suicide. I believe that Satan is using advertising as a tool to further his agenda in destroying souls. His tactics are still the same from the beginning, and God's word says that his assaults towards the end will intensify and will increase because he knows that his time is short. I'd like to read to you a quote from Patriarchs and Prophets because I think it has so much relevance to the time that we're living in. Satan is using every means to make crime and debasing vice popular. We cannot walk the streets of our cities without encountering flaring notices of crime presented in some novel or to be acted at some theater. The mind is educated to familiarity with sin. The course pursued by the base and the vile is kept before the people in the periodicals of the day. And everything that can excite passion is brought before them in exciting stories. They hear and read so much of debasing crime that the one tender conscience which would have recoiled with horror from these scenes becomes hardened. And they dwell upon these things with greedy interest. Many of the amusements popular in the world today, even with those that are proclaiming Christians, tend to the same end as those that, of the heathen. There are indeed few among them that Satan does not turn to account in destroying souls. Through the drama, he has worked for ages to excite passion and to glorify vice. The opera, with its fascinating display and bewildering music, the masquerade, the dance, the card table, Satan employs to break down the barriers of principle and open the door to sensual indulgence. In every gathering for pleasure where pride is fostered and appetite is indulged, where one is led to forget God and lose sight of eternal interests, there Satan is binding his chains about the soul. 
That's a powerful truth from the writings of Ellen G. White. Many times while working on projects for clients, I have had to compromise some of my convictions in order to satisfy my customers' requests. I can remember one, one project that I worked on, I was asked to design a postcard that was catchy and it required some nudity. I was already mailing millions of postcards for this client and for this customer and I had a long-term relationship with them. So it was kind of hard for me to say no, even though I had told him it was a bad idea. And we even had to get um, approval from the post office in order to, to uh, get an exception to mail it. I was expo exposed to, excuse me, during the design process, I had to search for images to find one that fit his specifications for this new promo. During the inter interim, I probably scanned through over a thousand images. I was exposed to many other sexually related images and I could not get the images out of my mind. Looking back now, there was no amount of money that would put me in that position again. I had to consecrate myself to God through prayer and ask him to cleanse my mind and my spirit from those images. I have one more little short excerpt I'd like to read from Patriarchs and Prophets because it's really relevant. Yet we have a work to do to resist temptation. Those who would not fall prey to Satan's devices must guard well the avenues of the soul. They must avoid reading, seeing, hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. The mind should not be left to wander at random upon every subject that the adversary of souls may suggest. How are we doing on time? Okay. When I was eight years old, like I said, I grew up in California, but most of my family is from New Orleans, from Louisiana. I was, uh, we would go to, to New Orleans every summer to go visit my grandmother. And one summer while we were there, my, I was there with my brother in front of my grandmother's house, and my mom's sister was there also. And her, she had been separated from her husband, who had been in Vietnam. And he came over to see her. And so we went inside and said, Auntie Veronica, we'd like to... Uh, um, Sylvester's here to see you. Do you want to, why don't you go out and talk to him? And so she went out and talked to him, and we went inside and just looked out the screen door while they were conversing. And he shot her five times right in front of us. And she dropped to the ground, and he ran around the corner up on top of a high school and, and, and shot himself, committed suicide. And I was, I, was at, I was eight. I didn't really understand what was going on at the time, but that, those images stuck in my mind. And I, I started running away from home at 13 years old, and I started using cocaine. And my first time being incarcerated was at 14. And I, I continued along that path until I ended up in prison at 18. And that's where I found Jesus and, and asked him to come into my heart. Um, you know, like so many of the kids today, I was, I was just angry, and, and uh, I felt hopeless. And when you feel that way as a kid and you, you don't have parents that, that you could talk to, you start, you tend to focus your attention to the things of the world. The things that John has exhorted us to not love, the, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so many souls are being destroyed today because 
because of the focus that's that's on those things. Um, when I was in pr when I went to prison, I was strung out. I had about four or five different addictions. I was addicted to alcohol, cocaine, methamphetamines. I was addicted to lust. I was addicted to greed. I was doing crime to support my habit. I was living in Compton, California at the time, and that was basically you know how somebody young and during that time behaved, listening to rap music, listening to Snoop Dogg, so much of the stuff that, that the youngsters listen to today. You know, I remember distinctly driving down the street listening to Snoop Dogg, and the lyrics went something like, you know, um, I probably shouldn't even repeat them, but you guys get the picture. Um, so I'm, you know, we all have choices to make every day in our lives, whether for good or for evil. I thank the Lord that he has given us a standard through his law to live by. I was very successful in the advertising business because I played by the rules of the world, but I was, at the time I was not successful in my relationship with the Lord. But I leave behind those things that would, you know, I understand God's will for our sanctification, and, but I leave behind those things that would hinder that process. And I encourage you as you continue your walk with the Lord to just continue to consecrate yourself to him, read the word every day, and pray every day. That's very important because that's the only way that we will know what his will is. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Anthony. For, there's nothing like a personal testimony to give witness for God's, God's power. And um, Anthony and, and his wife, Terry, have been a real blessing to me. Let's have a closing prayer, Anthony. Precious Father, thank you for Anthony and Terry and... Uh, that they have accepted the three angels' message and uh, want to glorify you, that you have shown your power to transform lives and that if any of us here are struggling with addictions or maybe we realize now that we do have an addiction that we didn't see before, that we are called by Christ to give place to his glory and not to give the, the body temple to the inhabitation, for the inhabitation of the enemy with his images, his suggestions, his words, um, his appeal to the lower nature. Help us, Lord, crucify self to your power to be crucified and to live for you and to be that image that you created us to be in the very beginning, even more glorious in Christ Jesus. We thank you. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.